0: So Anthony Russo, how are you man? I'm doing well. Yeah, thanks for having me. Right. Is, it's good to catch up with you again and it's feels like we're just going to have a conversation like we always do. I know, It
1: feels like old times. It's funny you you don't see people for a couple of years and you're like is it going to be awkward for 5 minutes or you know are we going to have difficulty talking but obviously that that wasn't the case since we've yeah, we've kept in touch over, yeah. over yeah. the years and I do appreciate you coming on and definitely taking a leap of faith. I know everybody that sits here is like, "Oh, I don't know what it's like to be in a podcast or what this going to be like," but uh, thanks for for taking a chance, man.
0: No, thanks for having me, and I will say I'm I'm really impressed. I wasn't quite sure what to expect coming in on a podcast, and this is this is legit.
1: Well, so. you can see why when when I saw this, uh, yeah, I I actually tell a story. As soon as like we walked by this, and they said, "Oh, by the way, we have a podcast studio." It was like record stopped. You know, like where do I sign up for for the space? But yeah, this is this is not something that a lot of people get an opportunity to have access to, and so I feel very fortunate that they do this here. No, it's great. Well, so let's let's get into it, man. Before sure. we, you know, we're gonna talk uh, stop loss, of course. We're gonna to talk direct writer and Voya and all that stuff. I'd love to take a, a couple minutes just for the audience to get to know you though. So Anthony Russo, I got to ask, do you, do you still have the, the CrossFit gym in the garage, man?
0: We, we have the CrossFit okay. gym in the garage. Um, I, I still work out in the garage gym okay. for me to call it CrossFit would be an insult to CrossFit. Okay. These fair days. enough. But, uh, but yes. you ha-
1: did you ever get that, that rogue uh, machine that folded up against the wall, the squat rack or pull up I just, rack? Or I just have the regular rack. Okay. So it's, it doesn't fold up, but it's, it's,
0: it's that version of that. So it's now it, it takes up two stalls. And uh, <laughs> we, we, we pretty much have everything you can imagine in there that a CrossFit gym has. We have three boxes. We have that, uh, that treadmill, that assault, uh, that true form. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We have an assault bike. We have a rower. I have 600 pounds of bumpers. I have kettlebells that go to
1: five pounds to 70 pounds. Are you running classes in there, man? You got some neighbors coming over and we do <laughs> doing
0: wads. We, we do. I, <laughs> I don't do wads anymore. Okay. I think I stopped that at like 43, but uh, that was a few years ago. But uh, my, my wife, um, she'll do CG classes, okay. but she'll do it uh, remotely. Um, Obviously, that started up after COVID and stuff like that. But no, I just get up. uh, Nobody wants to work out the time of day I
1: work Are you you like a 4.30 guy, 5 a.m., something like that? 5
0: a.m., 5.15. Um, I've been moving a little bit later lately. I've uh, kind of taken your kick where I'll do some reading in the morning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'll wake up around 5, get a cup of coffee. I read for about 30, 45 minutes.
1: let the caffeine kick Let in. Let the before, caffeine yeah.
0: kick in. And then uh, myself and my two workout buddies, which are my two labradoodles, ah. will we'll go out and work out.
1: So. They keep you kind of honest, make sure you stay on uh, on one, task. One
0: guy, Nash, will literally sit behind me and just sit there and bark at me periodically for a treat. <laughs> uh, talker will lay there, stare at me, and then drop a ball periodically. That I got to throw a ball for him. So yeah, that's it's funny. Uh, yeah,
1: well, that's a good workout, buddies. Though they keep you keep you company, man. I you know I don't have the uh, I guess the pleasure of having something in my garage yet. I think one day my wife wife and I both talk about just the convenience of either having a room or the you know the garage dedicated to it. But um, you know I, I try to stay fit as well. But I think. Having just the ability to walk out, um, you know, into another room and do your workout and come back in, there's almost no excuse at that point to to stay fit, right? In theory, in theory, yeah. <laughs> the theory. There's also, well, ah, I don't feel like it today. Yeah, I do do it later. yeah, okay, yeah I hear you, man. But so, um, you know, I want to talk somewhat about your your career, if you don't mind, for a sure. second. Um, you spent the majority of your career in the, the carrier world, right? Pretty much all my
0: all my, your career, okay. all my career in the carrier world since out of eight or nine months of getting out of college, starting off on the finance side. Um, But all of it has has been driven primarily around insurance and a lot of it around employee benefits. How I kind of got into the employee benefits world when I got out of college doing the financial planning route, um, I had a a group rep call on me from Paul Revere. Okay. Um, His name was actually Terry Burnett and I met him during one of my internships and in being a 23 year old kid, um, a kid, a 23 year old—that's um, still a
1: kid. It, I mean, 23 is a kid for
0: sure. They gotta be careful these days. Yeah. you know, it's 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 all it's all mm-hmm. different. But um, I considered myself a kid at that time, trying to give people advice to either buy insurance or do investments. It was it was a difficult route. Mm-hmm. Um, Terry introduced me to um, in New York State. They have statutory D- DBL, okay, statutory disability law and uh, he, he kind of showed me what to do to call on employers to kind of get into that group world to meet the owners to sell them individual disability i see so that started in 97 and then in 99 i joined unum and i've been in the carrier world since
1: so yeah group rep for unum then were you doing life disability all answering the lines or what What were you selling at that yeah, time?
0: yeah at that time i actually went in on the executive benefit route okay so it was um, what the executive benefit route was for the top portion of the population that would have capped out on regular group benefits. UM you know, still does a good job of being able to make sure that, that they cover the top of the top inside the group. So I started there and then went down the traditional group route,
1: okay,
0: a large case voluntary or supplemental health route, large case group rep route, management, then got into stop loss. And it's been all all carrier, kind of all products across board. So I'm say pretty diverse.
1: Yeah, I was just saying you definitely you've, you've had stops at some of the biggest of course being at Voya today <laughs> at Sun Life prior to that at Unum before that. Did you know did you have any idea though that this was going to be your career path coming out of school? It sounds like maybe but not, not necessarily Not, not really. Okay. It was,
0: uh, you know, you and I were kind of talking about this beforehand. I went in. Um, well, initially when I was a freshman. It, it was, well, you can go back to a, a Seinfeld episode where Costanza always wanted to be an architect. Okay, gr- growing up. I wanted to be an architect. And I did play college sports. You and I talked about this in the yep. past. You play college sports. Well, none of the schools recruited me Had architecture. So I was like, oh, the closest thing would be engineering. Not even close, but you know, <laughs> I was a little high school kid. So I, I was lucky enough to get uh, recruited by University of Rochester, got the privilege to go to that university. And initially, they had a great engineering program. So I started off my first semester in chemical engineering because I liked chemistry, mm-hmm. liked engineering. I was good at math. Let me try that. That lasted about uh, two semesters, and I was like, "Yeah, that's not the route I'm going down." Was it just
1: too difficult? You didn't like the subject? What happened there? It, it was it was too tough. Too you tough. Know, it okay. was just
0: it, it wasn't it wasn't panning out. <laughs> I thought <laughs> it was going to pan out. So in that with athletics, and uh, I really liked uh, business, and they didn't have a business school, but they had economics, which I really enjoyed because it was a more of a mathematical business degree Mm -hmm. and there was different things that you can do with it. One being finance and one we were talking about an actuarial, you can kind of go down that path. So I got introduced to that but during, during athletics there was a lot of companies that would come in and talk to us and one of those would Unum, you know you had Northwestern Mutual on the other insurance side, 'Cause they like the athletes. They liked hiring mm-hmm. from uh private university, especially in the northeast. So I got introduced to it that way. But I can say honestly growing up that I never envisioned myself, you know, selling
1: insurance. Well me neither, right? And I think it's it was a funny Um, I I graduated, I think, business administration. I had an exercise science degree as well, but I had no idea what I wanted to do. So for the first three months, um, I'm living with grandma because my parents are like, well, well, your sister has your room now, so you can't come back. And so I'm living with grandma, trying to find a job, scouring the internet. It was still early stages of, I don't even know if LinkedIn was around at that point, Um, but I was applying to anything and everything. And yeah, probably stuff I should have never applied to because there's no way I would have been qualified to do it. But um, Liberty Mutual, was one of those you kind of mentioned Unum and uh, I forgot the other Northwestern Mutual, Mutual would yeah. hire kids out of school. Well, Liberty Mutual was the same, but they hired me as a claims adjuster. So it's like you're you're well, you have decent grades, right? You have no experience. Go up to Boston for ten days. We'll train you how to be an insurance adjuster, and then good luck. Yeah. And so it's funny, like I I didn't like the insurance adjustment world, but that's how I started. And ever it's been almost fifteen years now, and I'm still still in the insurance okay. world. So it, it sucks you in, man, and doesn't let you go. It does, you know, it does. Well, so that's that's uh, obviously the background. So let's let's bring it to, to up to present day, if you don't mind. Obviously, you work with Voya. You've been mm-hmm. for with Voya for four years now, uh, correct? Just, just coming on four years, yeah. Cool. And so you are. I know your title was uh, <laughs> a sentence long. What was the title again? It's
0: the official title is Executive Regional Manager for the South Region of Health Benefits. Okay. So it's. Uh, it, it's what what my my office that, that I manage is Dallas, Houston, and Phoenix, so okay. kind of all territories inside of that. And my particular division focuses on the employee benefits side. Okay. We call it the uh, health side. The health side. Um, the reason why is Voya right now, we're, if you look at our total value picture of what we look at, we call health and wealth. Mm-hmm. We're Kind of trying to tie everything together, but we're responsible for stop loss, um, life and disability, uh, FMLA, ADA, and then our supplemental health products.
1: Supplemental health, what would be, what would
0: qualify um, Hospital that? indemnity, ah. critical illness, uh,
1: accident. Was it site Is that work what work people side, refer to? Yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah,
0: but ours, we, we kind of more, um, to give people perspective, we call it supplemental health.
1: Supplemental okay. Because
0: it, it, it ties so closely to the health insurance mm-hmm. and high deductible plans and so forth. And uh, two years ago, or recently, maybe a year and a half ago, we also launched HSAs. Oh, They're I didn't kinda, know that, okay. kind of tie into that just to, once again, bringing against bring together that health and wealth.
1: Well, because Voya is also known for the 401k space as mm-hmm. well, right? Or yeah. retirement space.
0: Yep. On, on our on our wealth side, the which wealth. Is our yeah. wealth. the side. wealth and we're, health. I'm getting wealth it now. Yeah. Yep. It's uh, you know, we have a lot of different programs over there, but yes, we're our goal on that side is to be the most recognizable uh, 401k or retirement company in the U.S. So they're they're they're, they're definitely uh, we do really well in 401k and every everything around that. There, there's there's uh, there's a whole different world over there that I'm still learning.
1: Yeah, it was, it's, it's like when I talk to benefits brokers, and then you'll ask about the PNC side of the shop, where they're, those things are so compartmentalized. I have friends that don't know the insurance industry as well, and they're like, "Oh, well, you don't know about uh, individual life insurance." I'm like, "No, no I have no, no clue. Idea. Go talk yeah. to somebody else or yeah. Medicare, or you know, that's completely not the same thing." But people just lump insurance into exactly. into one thing. Yeah. But I think the one thing that I want to uh, you know ask you about in, in specific that ties it into the self-funded with Spencer. Uh, theme, if you will, is I had Jeff Petty on here a few episodes back, and Jeff obviously is at Pace Underwriters there in MGU. Mm -hmm. And so we spent a lot of the conversation talking about well, what's an MGU? What's the value proposition? Where do they fit? You obviously are the inverse of that, or at least, I don't know if not necessarily opposite, but you guys are a direct writer of stop loss. So could you take a second to define that for the audience?
0: Sure. You know, as a direct writer, like we, we Carry all our own risks. So Mm -hmm. it's all on our own paper. It doesn't mean that we don't necessarily have reinsurance behind us for for particular levels, Mm -hmm. but that decision sits on our paper singly. So if we insure a company and if we insure up to a certain max as it goes through that claim, we're the only individual that'll say yay or nay to that claim. Okay. Um, so So that gives
1: you what would you call that the pen or authority or sometimes
0: referred to as? It gives us the full liability of making that decision. Yeah. So there's not, um, where MGU's definitely have their spots, they're they're good areas to fit Mm -hmm. into, but depending on risk levels, they could have to spread that risk out over different reinsurers that might carry different paper from, from what they're kind of underwriting up front. We carry that whole risk.
1: Well, yeah, and that's what, you know, Jeff did a great job because Jeff came from the, the, it came from HCC, obviously, he was at a big direct writer as well. So did a really good job of objectively laying out the value proposition, which I think is fair, mm-hmm. right? It's an MGU is not for everybody. Voya is probably not for every case size as well. So presumably, I know from what I know, as well as the background, Voya has been predominantly thought of as a larger case mm-hmm. underwriter. Is that, is that correct?
0: Yeah. You know, over time, it, it wasn't one of the things that we went in and kind of planned it out. It just kind of happened over time. Okay. Um, and it, it, it's really just for, for the fact that we, we our average spec tends to be a little bit larger. It's right around that 350 to 400K spec. Okay. Um, only about 30% of our groups utilize aggregate. So just uh, we, we tend to be a pretty heavy SPAC. On I was gonna say that's company. a that's
1: a pretty low percentage.
0: It is, you know, it's one of those things where uh, ultimately, we're at a position now that we're, we're really kind of trying to go back down markets. Okay, you know, we'd really like, you know, our average spec to probably sit around, you know, 250, 300. Okay. So we are, you know, making sure that we're, we're focusing more on, on, on regional brokers. And and because traditionally, we've really spent a lot of our time with panels or COEs or some
1: of the larger consulting houses just because they tended to play in that, that higher space. Sure. So so you said originally, or not necessarily intent, but you guys obviously ended up gravitating towards that larger space due to the relationships, but you're driving potentially back down. Now, does that mean going after the middle market type brokers, the regional brokers, like you mentioned, and they tend to have business that's in that lower range of, of the spec levels, right?
0: Yeah, they tend to be. I mean, we're one of the things that, that I really like about Voya or who we are is we, we kind of know what, what we're good at and what we're not good at. Mm-hmm. Um, we're very good at at, at where we offer but it tends to be in that larger corporation but we'll we'll write down the 200 lives Um, it's really making sure that our services kind of match up with what they're looking for okay and and a lot of times some of those services tend to uh, larger companies tend to kind of value our value prop And, and one of those is being a direct writer having the say on each individual claim um work giving them some expertise around their their plan docs mm-hmm. and also our um or, you know, our cost containment provisions that we, we
1: have. Out well, and What is, what is kind of the broader value proposition? I, uh, you know, we define a direct writer is you write on your own pa- it's R- Reliastar paper yeah, rely R- yeah, R- okay. a star paper. Is yeah. that so you write on your own paper? Of course, you know, there still might be some reinsurance behind the scenes, but you guys are ultimately making the claims decisions and mm-hmm. those sorts of things. So that's a direct writer, but there's always the, the, you get to pick from the BUCAs of the world. Everybody yeah. understands what a BUCA and they offer stop loss. Mm-hmm. You got the MGUs and then the direct writer positions itself, I presume somewhere in the middle of those two as well. So what, What are the things that, as a direct rider, you tend to advocate for yourself in the market?
0: Yeah, One, obviously, going, leaving that, you know, we get to make the decision on the claim and so forth. But number two, um, especially when we call it unbundling, I mean, some of your training, you came through that. We're obviously a direct rider, independent rider. We don't carry our own ASO plans and so forth. So it's a second set of eyes. So claim adjudication, we'll review that claim even if it's with a tpa or if they're using a tpa network it could be a third set of eyes versus a second set of eyes mm-hmm. and we also have our own set of terms of cost containment provisions that are voluntary but if an employer wants to take advantage of those or get into the claims as they're going down downstream or start to kick into that large claim report 25 percent, 50 percent, we can recognize ic9 ic10 codes and start to identify things that we're seeing off of our block that might be of concern and get involved a little earlier. Yeah. So is there modality around dialysis? Is there, um, is there a large um, a specialty pharmacy that we might have a relationship with that we can come in and then um, provide some insight or provide, if it's once again voluntary, but if a company or claimant wants to go down that path, we can put them in touch with um, center of excellences around certain cares, um, modality of care, in, in US, outside of US. So mm-hmm. we, we just have some expertise around that, where it's uh, sometimes if you're not a direct writer or if you don't have those resources, because we are, I mean, we've been doing this for 30 some years. How big know, is the Voya
1: block, or at least the public? Uh,
0: it's around 1.1 billion. 1.1, okay. Yeah, so it's, I think it's, it's the last that time That's stop loss we look, only. Stop, though, stop right? loss yeah. only, yeah. yeah. Stop loss only, and that I think is the third largest. Okay. So the last time we looked, third or fourth largest independent direct rider in the, in the US. So uh, depending how you look at it. So, so we have some expertise there. We have volume that we can look at. Yeah. And we can also look at trends but one of our biggest value props is, you know, we pay claims yep. and, we, and we do it exponentially quick, you know, so that that's one of the things we take pride
1: in. So. Well, yeah, and that's what I love, you know, of course, obviously coming from the Sun Life, uh, you know, sim- similar value proposition, slightly different, but the, you know, they're advocating for a lot of the same things. The thing that I objectively have felt like I appreciated the most about a direct writer's position versus a book position is, you can only really make money off the stop loss right so your incentives to keep costs down were in line mm-hmm. with the employer's incentive to drive right. down costs cuz if you don't control them then you're paying big big reimbursements and guess what there's big renewals on the other side right. of that as well so i felt like there was proper alignment of uh, outcomes there with a direct writer mgu probably you know the same, same. the same yeah. as well uh, but that was the what i felt like i could do a relatively decent job as a rep um, positioning versus staying with a Blue Cross or United mm-hmm. or Cigna. Again, different value proposition. The not value, denigrating yep. their what they do. No. It's just a different you know different buyer, different reason why they're purchasing mm-hmm. stop loss for me versus that that source. Yeah.
0: And and I think that was one of the reasons why we tended to go up market too, because as you continue to go up market, the unbundling factor, third parties. Direct riders kind of become more prevalent it seems
1: like yeah and it's, you're doing probably less time convincing of the employer Employer's that what a direct rider is right it's just more about well what is what makes me different for sunlight pricing and those right, sorts of right. things so you know obviously you guys are big financial financially stable I mm-hmm. mean is you're one of the few I think stop loss carriers you know asana Sumetritra similar in the fact that they offer some of those other ancillary mm-hmm. benefits and voluntary as well you guys are unique though that your your reps are Selling both,
0: correct? Yeah, we yeah. are actually util, utilize a generalist model. Okay, And uh, what we consider that in, um, when we bring, uh, when our average tenure of rep is, I think on my team, the youngest or experience-wise is 15 years. Oh, wow. Yeah, so there's, um, but by doing that, though, it, it's like a large case group life and group DI um, rep. It's a specialty stop-loss rep and an expert, and supplemental benefits. Okay, So they're, they're doing all three. Um, we do have support around them uh, on specialty cases. Um, you know, we have um, uh, a gentleman in our office who I consider one of the, the best in the industry. His name is Fred Rodenbach on our supplemental health I've heard, of, I've heard of Fred, yeah. One of the best in the industry. And then we have an extremely talented team. And then we also have a, an individual that, that'll that help us out with, with underwriting with, with cases over 5,000 lives in a life in DI. But my, my rep, when they go in, and work with the producer or consultant. That that's that that's the person working with them for all product lines.
1: So. Well, I, I I could see obviously from a broker perspective, it's nice to have one singular point of contact for those lines of coverage, right? Mm-hmm. There, with the generalist model, you might run potentially the risk that they're better at one line of coverage or the other. But uh, I presumably, with a 10 average, tenure of fifteen years, most people are probably well versed in in everything. And I think also. The, the, the cohesion between the sales process, if you're quoting all those lines of coverage, in, in one fell swoop means there's a little bit more that connects that entire sales process together. So it makes sense. It, it
0: does. And, and also, too, just to protect against people, not, not all markets are created equal. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're one of my reps that has a an infinity more towards stop loss. His market is probably closer to stop loss heavy. Sure. Where one of my, if another one of my reps is more identifying with the life DI and supplemental health, well, their market's probably a little bit more driven, heavily based off of those products.
1: Well, that's fair, right? I mean, we all gravitate towards the things that are interesting to us, right? But then you have to make sure, obviously, you're still, I'm sure you guys are incentivizing properly to make sure they're selling all all those things. But, um, you know, of course, we'll we'll focus a little bit more specifically on the stop loss. And I I love um, talking about this. I think the one thing that you and I talked about as a potential nice uh, micro subject matter would be the the clinical side of this. Mm -hmm. We didn't get too deep with Jeff on that, but I, I love hearing about, What's coming down the pike? What are these big, you know, maybe prescription medications, specialty medications that are somebody like you or the position that Voy is in with a credible block of business, you guys are able to see two, three years down the line and maybe price for those things. So what are, generally speaking, what are the kind of things that you're seeing right now?
0: Well, the big thing now that we're hearing quite a bit about is the cell and gene therapy treatments. Okay. And, And just the research around that. Um, we actually just did a seminar, or we called it Voya University, for about 200 producers that were invited in and then we had an expert panel come on and kind of talk about what they're seeing in the marketplace around the next, what we view as kind of that large ticket item kind of going down that path because it seems like every couple of years there's, there's that different area that you're kind of looking out for few years ago, HEA or HAE, you know, medicine. when I was still
1: selling HAE was the big one that everybody was talking yeah, about. And then there was some, you know, massive drugs or,
0: or, or uh, pharmaceuticals that were being price tagged along with that where, you know, that's starting to tame down a little bit. So still, okay. still pretty pricey, but not 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 Anything that's really gonna, not some of the price tags that we've. Well, seen I was. I mean, we
1: were. Uh, yeah, we were looking at sometimes exclusions, hereditary angioedema, edema, right? Yeah. HAE. I forgot what is the medication that was at the time. Uh, yeah, e- I'll put you on the spot. Don't don't yeah, worry about it, man.
0: it's. I wouldn't
1: be able to pronounce it. I remember it, anyway. it was. Uh, <laughs> I want to say it was an eight hundred, a million, million two. I can't remember exactly what the price point was. Yeah, it um, was.
0: It was real sensitive. It was about two hundred fifty thousand dollars a shot. Okay. Um, and it really just kind of, uh, d- depending on when and where it was given, I mean, it could vary widely, but we saw claims anywhere from a million to, you know, upwards to three, four million. And okay. there's some that were just completely just out of the realm.
1: Yeah, I know, I've heard, I've heard the rumors of the 20 plus million dollar claim, um, which, you know, obviously, I think every time somebody retells the story, the claim gets bigger, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. it's one of those like the fish, gets grows exactly. after you tell the story. Yeah. But I think it's also important for folks that aren't as well versed in the stop loss world to understand, you know, there's, there's the known risk right? And there's the unknown risk. And you guys are obviously pricing in the manual for some of that unknown risk, like the million dollar drug that pops up out of nowhere that you couldn't have possibly predicted. So, you know, what are, what is the next kind of, is there a, a certain um, condition or certain drug that now you're hearing more buzz about in the yeah, market?
0: I think everybody heard about Zolgensma. Yes. Uh, it's about, about a year and a half or two years ago. And, and that's for a really small percentage It's spinal, um, spinal muscular dystrophy, okay. and it's really designed. Which is, which is, you know, one of the really good things I think came out of the ACA. You know, pluses and minuses of that, but one of them was the the amount of money and research is being done with, with some of the diseases that are out there because there's a way at least the payoff back for pharmaceutical companies up front. Mm -hmm. The downside of that is that there's gonna be some, there's gonna be new drugs that are coming out or new pharmaceuticals or new treatments, cell treatments, transplant treatments that are gonna be pretty expensive. Mm -hmm. Zoljasma was one of the first kind of like gene therapy ones that we saw. And that is for a horrible disease for for younger children that that are just being born, FDA approved under two, they're starting to look at that. But just the shot, the one-time shot of that was around 2.2 million, Whew. not counting any of the hospital costs, the doctors' costs, you know, the post-treatment, pre-treatment, the medical versus the, the pharmaceutical charges. So any that could run up to about 3.5. Okay. Um, so th- there's there's $3. Some, 3.5 some million, million dollars. Yep. Okay. So it but it's it it it, it, wor- it works and in most cases where at least there's there's a positive um, recuperation rate from, from this. So it's, it's something that's interesting. So now we had this expert panel come in and, and kind of talk about, you know, like that, that next wave. Coming, yeah. You always coming have through. to be
1: looking two, three years out, right? Yeah. So they're
0: the right now they're seeing within 12 and 24 months, there's about seven CAR T, which is more of the cell, um, cell, um, injection and, and, and transfusions or transplants you okay. want to call it to help, um, to help cure and help uh, fight some of these diseases. One that's on the, um, I forget the name of it, but it's for sickle cell. And they're they're kind of seeing that fall into the same Zolgensma type price tag. But right now, across the next 24 months, if you take cell and gene therapy, they're looking at about 40 different drugs or specialty medicines okay. that are gonna be coming out for either gene or cell therapy. So, and that's once again, just for the, the pharmaceutical part of that. So. The science of moving forward to be able to you know, to to help people out in, in regards to some of these awful diseases is fantastic. Mm-hmm. It's just there's a price tag to that. Yeah. So you know, making sure that companies uh, that you're going to see much more um, just questions around. I think population health, you know, um, but some of these you're not really going to be able to kind of There's not know, there's not really
1: any preventative measures, right? I mean, if somebody's born with one of these conditions or you know, let's say an employee gets hired and uh, their you know, child the dependent is on the plan and all of a sudden they come on with this particular condition. I mean, right. it's it's unpredictable. It's almost impossible to predict. How do you guys do it though from a, a corporate perspective? Let's say a new drug is on the market, it's FDA approved, it cures X. Is that something immediately um, would be then a covered condition or is there some sort of uh, measure that has to go in place that we're not adding this to a list of things we cover and it's no longer experimental? How does that work? You know, as a
0: direct writer, we really look at their plan doc. And in one of the things, and and this is, I think you asked me and just kind of peeking at the questions before we were coming here, you know, what do you want people to kind of take away from this? Oh, yeah, yeah. And if I would say anything to anybody working with companies or any company that's that self-insured, is to make sure that their plan doc is up to date, um, written for and with the understanding of a lot of these new treatments coming out, how do they want them to be handled? Because mm-hmm. if it's FDA approved, you know that, and if it's approved in their plan doc, then odds are that's going to get paid. Okay. So and that and that's what we're here for, um, and and to be able to take them down, but. In some of these these really large uh, treatments, they're also being looked at as the second, they're not always the third or last resort anymore. These are getting moved up the path because okay. they're so effective. So, the, so the, the idea of having one of those land in your population could be pretty, pretty it's, it's increasing. Yes. Um, there was a, a, a survey that we asked those 200 producers and consultants that, that were on that call when we were talking about the cell and gene therapy um, panel, and it was: Do you have any um, customers or groups that you're working with right now that you have bumped into this in your group? So obviously, the broker, the, the producer answered or consultant answered it. So they're working with multiple organizations, but 30% of the population. That was on on that uh, training or seminar said yes, okay. They are dealing with one in one or multiple of their groups. so it's it's definitely out there
1: so. well, that's you know that's what obviously as um, you know a direct writer too, when something like this happens, you're essentially you're on the hook, right? There's not necessarily any recourse if, like you said, if it's approved in the plan doc, it's an FDA approved drug. You know, how do you account for if the majority of the business is written at 1 1 and something gets approved, FDA approved in August of that year? You just accept it and then price for it for a renewal season next year or how would that work
0: you, you know it's you know obviously manuals are driven based off of overall population mm-hmm. and overall population health depending on industry depending on age and all those different things that go into it you know, actuarial stuff that, that i don't need to <laughs> talk about but um it, it really kind of depends Either there's certain things that are going to be one-time you know impacts and in, in some of these therapies they're going to be more one-time impacts mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um you know it's it, i can't really speak for our underwriters too much but we kind of look at them as, you know, you, you got to kind of pull those large claims. And it's, it, it, stop loss is, is something it's not, for as a carrier, you know, you can't be faint. It's, you got to kind of be, all be in on stop loss. Yes. And that's the reason why, you know, we've been doing it for so long. And there's very few companies, probably a handful that have been doing it for as long as we have, because mm-hmm. a lot of people jump into it see these large claims yeah. and then jump right back out there like that wasn't any fun. Yeah. But part of that is, is just knowing that there's gonna be peaks and valleys of this. Sure. So the idea is is to have a customer that we have partners with, you know, working with our producers, consultants and the work through those. If mm-hmm. it's a one time hit and, and we know it's going away, yes, we'll probably want to recruit some of that. But to the full extent, that's unrealistic. Yeah, you know, it's it, it's just the luck of the draw, yeah. luck of the large
1: numbers. Well, yeah, and then you obviously spread the risk over you know a thousand clients or how many clients you guys have. Of course, you know, if you fi- have 15, 20, 25 hits spread over a, a block that's big, mm-hmm. big enough, right? You can smooth out smooth some out. of those fluctuations. Yeah, yeah. yeah. but it's still, I think that's an important message for people to understand when buying stop loss. Right, you want to work with a partner, Voya or somebody else that. In that four corners of the contract that everybody always talks about, that partner is going to step up to the plate and pay a, a claim, no matter how big it is. They can play pay a claim, you know, whether it's five million or twenty-five million, if those actually exist anymore. But that's it's something that I don't think a lot of employers necessarily understand when purchasing stop losses. Mm-hmm. Worst case scenario is that company going to be there for you, right? Correct. Yeah, and I think people also tend to think of oh, insurance. Why they didn't pay anything on my. You know, no stop-loss claims last year. I had a zero percent loss ratio. Why am I getting an increase? It's, well, it's not just you for one, and that's also yeah. You had a great year. What happens next year when that's not the case, right? So there, there's got to be a smoothing effect on a micro and a macro level. I think as well. Correct. Yeah. So that's cool. So that's a high cl- high dollar claim stuff. You know, I love hearing about that. Let's let's go more of a macro view on uh, the last year because everybody knows obviously what happened last year. With claims, what were you guys seeing on the, sort of that downturn with COVID, and then maybe what's going to be the the other side of that in the coming years? You, you know, that's that's something
0: as, as and I think most carriers look back at last year, and the overall large spec hits were down. Okay, um, aggregate seemed like it, it was it was down also, um, but there are some concerns coming out of that, and and especially when you're looking at overall medical spend, and if we're, we're I think there's carriers out there or there's an undertone that we could be concerned with were those were those cancers that could have got caught earlier were were they were they caught on on well visits Mm -hmm. um were people with hypertension or were leading down high cholesterol were they seeing their doctor when everything was shut down um there is some concern about that and in there there's there's discussion not necessarily with voya but just the industry Mm -hmm. of like how is that going to play out over next year and the year after Mm -hmm. i know that there's There's certain underwriting philosophies now of like underwriting aggregate coverage. You know, what type, what, um, how much of 2020 and early 21 is is credible information coming through Mm -hmm. on that data that they're seeing? Because, you know, obviously aggregate was pretty easy to calc in the past. You had your overall spend, you had your corridor, and so forth. But if that corridor, if that overall spend was down significantly, You can't really utilize that year.
1: yeah, I wonder what the philosophy there is, you almost skip over that year in terms of uh, credibility or you still account for it, but weight it less in the overall? It's, it's, um, we're kind of,
0: we don't have a firm approach on it. It Mm -hmm. really depends on the experience. If it's way off, then, hey, we need to take a deeper dive into this if it's within a certain percentage, then maybe we'll throw 5% on it or something okay. like that, just to just go down that. And it really depends on the, on the corridor window too. Yeah. So if they're at 115, then obviously that's something we need to be a little bit more cor- careful at versus they're at their 125 corridor. Sure,
1: yeah, and that makes sense, you know, but I, I, I'm curious if that, uh, it looking in the crystal ball, if that's correct, right? If, if we believe a certain percentage of the population delayed or completely ignored certain care or certain screening now, is that, you know, what's the residual effect of that? Is it we're going to see maybe more frequency and more severity because cancers were missed or heart attacks were missed, you know, or maybe some of those warning signs were missed? I guess any, it's anybody's guess right now, but that's a reasonable assumption, I think, to make, right? It's a
0: reasonable assumption, and now it's really trying to to put the math to it. Yeah, And that's... Um, that's where actuaries make their money. So <laughs> we'll, we'll see. We'll see how it works
1: out. Yes. And speaking of actuaries, do you mind uh, for a second? time? I know uh, you've got. So um, Anthony and I were talking beforehand. Anthony's got a, a daughter Reagan that yeah. just graduated from high school and is actually gonna study actuarial science. So would you mind sharing, you know, the thought process behind that? Because I, I think she might be the first person I've ever heard is going to study that in, in college. So that's pretty interesting.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those things where my daughter, um, she, she's got a really good head on her shoulders. And she's been an awesome student. And we've been really lucky. And she's unbelievably self motivated. I don't think I've ever had to tell her to do her homework. That's awesome. You know, yeah. she just she's just kind of doing it. Well, she's gonna be a freshman at Baylor next year. Okay. Yeah. And uh, one of the things and and how she became interested in actuarial science and statistical science going into it was really a class that she took in high school, and it was My Health Money. Okay. And uh, that class, um, she had to pick a major, and this was, I think, was her freshman or sophomore year. She had to pick a major. Um, then she had the, uh, and she really did that major based off of what, you know, her starting salary was going to be coming out of
1: school. What's a smart kid though. Smart that that I would have done smart the same kid. thing. Yeah. But
0: she came down to my, myself and, and my beautiful wife, Shelley, And she's just like, all right, uh, she kind of rolled her finger around. She's like, what, what? what how do I do this? You know, like how, can, how can I, you know, I, you know, it seems like we got a pretty good lifestyle. You know, yeah. how can I do this? And, and she actually asked a question. She's like, what did you major in? I was economics. My wife is economics. But she went on to the law school and she was an attorney. So we were a blast at a, a cocktail party because I was an insurance agent because nobody uh-huh. else could tell the difference. And my wife is an attorney. So like two people you never want to talk to. <laughs> but, my my daughter kinda looked at that and she's like, All right, so what, what can you do with that? And I was like, Finance or you can go down an actuarial route and she's like, What is actuary? And I was like, Well, you know, pretty much everybody in, in executive level or higher in my organization had some type of actuarial study. Okay. Or they're they're in actuary science and they're pricing and doing all those different things. So she kinda did some research on it and And then she spent more time studying or looking at different careers that she can do with statistical science and actuarial science. And I'm very proud of her. She's starting off and we all know people change majors, but um, she she is definitely going in and I'm excited. Hopefully she finishes it and she goes through that because I would love to have somebody in my family actually explain what I do.
1: That's funny. Yeah, explain yeah. it back to you. Right? Yeah, back I've been selling it me. this whole time. I really don't understand it. Yeah. So, but right. not
0: only that, like when you were in it, you know, could, yeah. could Courtney really tell people like what you do? She,
1: she could say he sells stop loss insurance. And that was really the extent I, you know, I spent some time with her, but you know, the people that just aren't in the industry, right. It's, You 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 lose kind of some of the desire to try because there's so much context you have to give before you even get to what you do that it's like you don't care and I don't care. Let's just sell insurance. Yeah, I sell insurance, right? Um, But that's that's interesting, right? And I think did Dad have some influence on that though? The actuarial route a a, a little bit, a little bit. You know,
0: it's 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 one of those where you know I you know I. I give advice, you mm-hmm. know, and, and they can take it or not, you know. It's it's so it's, but right now she she th- really and she's excited about it and she's interested about it and she reads about it quite a bit and she'll actually come in because um, obviously working from from home pretty heavily now and she'll mm-hmm. hear me on conversations around pricing or different things or she'll come in and actually ask questions.
1: That's so she, I mean, she, that's got to make you feel pretty proud, right? Like she's taking an interest in what Dad does. It is because you
0: know. now she's going to go and study the numbers behind it, yeah. and she's kind of heard the front conversations of you know what it is. Mm-hmm. So, and um, so I, we're-
1: Once you'll get to have those conversations if she goes the insurance route, she'll eventually get the butt heads with the sales reps that are trying to get certain pricing and she gets to be the one like, no, we can't do that. Like, you, yeah, I know you want to sell it, but no, we've got some risk that we're concerned about here. Yeah, she,
0: Her dream is to one day be the head actuary for the company that I work for so she can tell me no.
1: Okay, so, so you just gotta, you know, keep working long enough for yeah. that, that to happen, man. But that's, well, kudos to her. I think that's really cool, right? And it's very rarely do I think people Um, that I hear about, right, go into some sort of insurance-related... I know it's not necessarily solely insurance, Insurance. but... Um, it, it's just fascinating because as a guy that, it, like you yourself as well, stumbled into this yeah. and turned it into a career and found out you liked it, um, you know, it's it's actually cool to hear some young people have a good head on their shoulders and go, actually, that sounds interesting. Why don't so, yeah, I go do that? Do that um, yeah. Well, good for her, man. Well, um, We'll get a couple more minutes. We'll wrap sure. it up here. I w- I'd love to hear... I know you mentioned you guys do a lot of the panels and the coalition-type mm-hmm. business. Could you real quick uh, describe what a panel or a coalition is and then talk about, you know, what that arrangement is like with the, the agencies that do that?
0: Yeah, sure. I, I think this has been... I mean, it's an involving perspective of regional and national players mm-hmm. um, just with how involved that uh, brokers and consultants and teams that are working with these large organizations of, of what uh, hr team shrinking um, more pressure putting on that consultant or producer calling on these organizations that it's hard for them to be experts or um, be experts and do all the marketing at the same time so a lot of these large organizations um, you know, the Mercers, the Aeons, mm-hmm. you know, the Locktins, you know, they put together center of excellences, which you call them panel, coalition, and so forth. But they're really, you know, they're, they're experts in that particular product. And they do the marketing for those producers or teams that are working with, with the, the actual client. Okay, So it, it alleviates the marketing from that particular team and then they get kind of the final results, they get to dig into the company and the contracts and so forth and move out. But it's taking that that part away from them. And especially, you know, it seems like we're a lot of these producers having to chase, you know, different organizations for data. Yep. I mean, that's one of the biggest, you know, toughest things on our side as a third party of getting the prop- appropriate data to be able to quote uh, effectively without what we call in our industry's conservative assumptions. Okay. Because if we don't have those answers, then we have to leave that. You always have to err on the side of caution. caution yeah, right. yeah, absolutely. conservative assumption. So um, th- 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 we, we've had good success with them.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Not everybody's going that path, and that's fine. Um, we also love working with regional brokers and national brokers that mm-hmm. don't have the coalition. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's definitely something that's out there that we're seeing more and more of.
1: Um, Do you think it's just brokers that get to a certain level and maybe realize with the aggregated buying power that they, you know, one, they can maybe... You, like you said, you, you'll have an expert team, right? Or you dedicate a team to that, but there's also maybe you you, you uh, reduce the number of carriers you work with, maybe there's some contract enhancements, but there's there's a, a business decision, of course, that goes along with that as well, correct? Yeah, I think there's a business decision. I, I think it, part
0: of it is is not necessarily leverage with an organization mm-hmm. because you know we don't, um, a customer is a customer, a producer is a producer, a broker is a broker. Mm-hmm. Uh, one uh, producer or consultant's not gonna get a beneficial treatment on a certain plan versus another one with us. I mean, we don't go down that path. We might be able to get some better data from one producer or another, and sometimes from a coalition or sometimes from from a a direct relationship. But what I will say, it's a business decision on their part Mm -hmm. where, you know, where are they spending their money? and you know if my opinion if you know if anthony russo is going to do it then you know if 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 i'm a producer or if i'm a consultant i want to spend my time with my customers that 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 are directly and making sure i'm giving the best advice Mm -hmm. and not marketing yeah so me sitting back in my office sending out quotes is, is not an effective use of my time. So I can see organizations looking at that. Um, I also think it's a liability issue. You know, Some some organizations with their E&O and, and so forth, mm-hmm. if you have people that specialize in that, with inside your team and marketing that, are, are they making sure that they're checking all the boxes exactly. that we didn't miss
1: something? Exactly.
0: Because the last thing you want is a claim not being paid Especially a significant claim, a three mm-hmm. million dollar claim, because mm-hmm. somebody forgot
1: to check a box. Yeah, and I think that's, that's that's the relative value proposition you hear for doing it in house in a panel or a coalition, a COE, whatever you want to call it, versus you know the the external GA market. That obviously we both know very well. You know they're offering the as somewhat of the offloading or as a as a um, consultant in, mm-hmm. in order to outsource right that same some of the liability but the marketing efforts and the procurement efforts and those sorts of things so just you know obviously i don't want you you don't have to say better or worse or preferred because voya i think like you said takes sure. a neutral stance but you know understanding the difference in that internal coalition versus that external ga as a partner for marketing what what can you describe about that or
0: yeah, yeah. The
1: thing I to think about is, as an agency making that decision. Yeah, as an
0: agency making that decision, a lot of the times is do they have the resources? So if, if they're going to go down that panel or GA route, if that's a decision they're going to go down, they feel like that's the best move for them. You know, a coalition that's set up internally inside your own organization, you have to have scale. Mm-hmm. And you have to have dollars for mm-hmm. scale to make that efficient go down that path. You know, if you look at some of the really good GAs out there, and we have some great ones here in Texas, you know, that they can do that for them so they can be their coalition or team, and I think you see some of that around around our marketplace. Um, so if you have a, a, a regional player or a small regional player that might have three or four producers and an office of like 25 people, for them to kick up a COE that that's or a center of excellence, that's gonna be very expensive and, and not really advantageous them to do that. Mm-hmm. But if they partner with somebody that that's the, the, their GA version of a, a coalition for them, and then they're able to do that and be able to provide them the results. The, the producer or consultant, they need to be, when we're working with larger organizations, they need to be experts in what they're doing. And mm-hmm. they do have that knowledge and they do have that, but the, all the back room stuff on the marketing perspective,
1: that's it's a great spot for some of those really good
0: GAs to be able to work
1: with. Yeah. With and is, is there producers. maybe a dollar threshold that you think certain agencies get at premium wise and they go, oh. I think we're big enough to, to set this up ourselves. Is it a couple hundred million, you think? Or it yeah. may, may be difficult to say. Yeah, right? yeah, I
0: wanna know. I mean, unfortunately I've always been on the carrier side. Yeah, yeah. So if I if I spoke to that, I'd probably be completely wrong. Anyway. That's right, you could
1: throw numbers out. Yeah, 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 you I, I get to be the expert up. for today, yeah, yeah, man. Yeah. Now, so And I appreciate that, and I think that's all, it's an interesting thing from my perspective, seeing the different distribution channels, having worked for Direct Rider and then the GA, and then of course there are these coalitions that the brokers set up as well. It's just fascinating. Everybody has interest and stop loss there's obviously big dollars associated with the premium and some of the compensation as well but it's just it's it's interesting f- seeing what these different agencies are doing to solve the same problem they're just doing going about it in slightly different ways Yeah. well so so all right man well so i think that's it we would cover the future i mean anything you kind of cover what you'd want to leave the audience with but if there's a nice little nugget you want to wrap up with yeah man, the no floor is
0: yours yeah two quick things there just to make sure you know especially as we're going down um Going forward, and just with with the future of medicine and cell and and, and, um, and gene therapies, just make sure your plan docs are up to date. You know, mm-hmm. just just don't take it for granted that you had it three three years ago written and somebody you know proofread it. I mean, these things that they need to be you know buttoned up and tight and and utilize your partners that you're utilizing with, you know, we'll do some reviews, we have partners that will do reviews, mm-hmm. we won't give advice, but we, we can review it and yes. just say, Hey, these might be a couple holes that might pop up, but there's there's great partners that are out there. And the next thing is, you know, just making sure if you're going down this route and, you, and you're working and, and uh, you're working with third parties, data is key. Mm-hmm. And especially as a self insured customer, you know, that that's their data. And, and making sure that they're able to get that from their ASO carrier, their TPA, to give that third-party rider, direct rider at MGU or anybody the, really a good line of sight on what they can see. Because it's just not for pricing. One of the things that we also can utilize and do and carriers can do is that cost containment, we might catch things even before we take them over as a customer yeah. and be able to provide some insight and some helping with some claim management or claim Helpfulness within that cost containment, even before they become a customer of
1: ours. So just data is important. Yeah, I would agree. Data, data was always my favorite reason to sell fund. You know, out of the bullet point list of everybody, the positives if you go self-funded, access to data, but also knowing, like you said, it is your data. You know, sometimes you have to fight a little harder for it. But at the end of the day, it is the employer's data. Which you're absolutely right, man. And I appreciate that's a that's a good place to leave it with. So Anthony, thanks for coming on, man. Thanks, thanks for you your time. Me. And it. it was a pleasure seeing you again. Yeah,
0: it was great seeing you. All right, man. Thanks.